Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, the shuttle was sort of the main aspect that people were thinking about in terms of human space. So, well, then what are we doing? And there was actually serious discussion about whether or not NASA should continue to exist. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Military figures have been known to call space the ultimate high ground, a place from which you can spy on any part of the world, a place to launch the sneakiest of sneak attacks from. But that's not NASA. NASA has a completely different role to play in great power politics. Joining us this week to talk about that, and also some space programs that weren't exactly greatest hits, is Steve Garber. He's a historian at NASA. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Can we start off by talking about NASA's origins in the Cold War? Was was it ever a military organization? No, it wasn't. And thank you for asking. Uh, NASA's origins were decidedly civilian. Uh, it came about in a few different ways. It has a heritage actually dating all the way back to 1915 to an organization called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. So we just celebrated our centennial anniversary of that. But what basically happened was um, the impetus for forming NASA came in the late 50s, after something called the International Geophysical Year, and of course the launch of Sputnik in 1957 by the Soviet Union. Who actually set it up? Was it a, by a presidential order, or did it come about some other way? Right. It was a decision by President Eisenhower, and he uh, made a conscious or explicit decision that NASA should be a civilian, decidedly civilian agency. And there are several reasons for that. Basically, he knew that the military was going to be working on various space technologies, such as intercontinental ballistic missiles, so ICBMs are launch vehicles to get into space, which are also used, of course, for um, intercontinental, potential intercontinental warfare, nuclear weapons strikes against the Soviet Union, of course. So... He knew that uh, the military was going to be involved in a lot of things anyway, but he wanted to set uh, NASA up as a civilian agency, and it stems back to its heritage as the NACA, but also um, he wanted to give NASA the opportunity to do other things that the military wouldn't do. So NASA has done things such as robotic space science that the military typically doesn't do at all. 
we also have a human spaceflight program that the military has never really had. There have been some efforts at um, having a military human spaceflight program, but those never materialized. And then there's also the role of, um, in addition of aeronautics, of course, I should say, the first A in NASA, NASA stands for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. But in addition, there's the whole discussion that we could have about the role of so-called soft power and international prestige that comes from uh, a civilian space program. Uh, of course, comparing it to the Soviet, former Soviet Union, where there wasn't the there wasn't such a separate space program. Then the, there were actually multiple space programs. The former Soviet Union had sort of a disaggregated, as we might say now, or a decentralized space program where there were various military bureaus that worked on various aspects of space and competed with each other. And uh, Eisenhower wanted to set up something that was decidedly different, that was decidedly civilian. Of course, though, he immediately drew upon uh, military pilots. And uh, I mean, they can't have been the only part of the military that was involved in creating NASA. What were they? Well, there were some other um, components of of the military that um, were incorporated into NASA. But basically, it was it was largely a and continues to be a civilian agency. I used to get uh, people used to call me up uh, or when I would speak to some people from the military for other reasons. Some people would say, what, what's your DSN number, um, which is an old military phone system? And I'd be like, I don't have one. <laughs> NASA is a civilian agency. It's not part of DOD. <laughs> well, so can we talk a little bit about the soft power then? Um, as the reason, uh, I mean, there's exploration for the sake of exploration, without a doubt, but um, right. the soft power, the propaganda, maybe, can you tell me a little bit about how important that was, how that's played into NASA's development? Sure. Um, I, there are a lot of different components to that. I would say that it was a key component in the 60s during the so-called space race with the Soviet Union. And human spaceflight plays a large role in that because, uh, of course, Project Apollo was the program to land astronauts on the moon. And the idea was to get there before the Soviets did with humans. And, of course, we accomplished that. The Soviets never put humans on the moon. There are political scientists nowadays who talk about the human spaceflight club or spacefaring club of nations. And the idea is that uh, it's really only a small number of nations that have put people into space and have that capability. So it's kind of, it's an elite little club, if, if you want to call it that. There's only, as I said, only a few nations that have the capability to do that. And so there is a lot of, of positive public relations value to be gained by doing this and do, doing this Apollo program during the 60s and other following human spaceflight programs afterwards. So a lot of people say that, use the expression that uh, human spaceflight is, to borrow a metaphor, the rising tide that lifts all boats at NASA. Or, or another common saying is, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. In other words, <laughs> um, 
or the reverse, I suppose, no Buck Rogers, no Bucks. The idea being that without a human spaceflight program, NASA wouldn't be able to do many of the other things that it does in robotic science and and aeronautics and technology development in a variety of areas. So it's it's sort of it garners uh, inspirational value. Now we talk a lot about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. It garners a lot of uh, inspiration value for the younger generation. Of course, they you know there are a lot of very exciting robotic space science missions and a lot of interesting things that NASA does in aeronautics. But I think most people would agree in general that with this idea that human spaceflight is sort of the rising tide that lifts all boats at, at NASA, that that's really what garners the most attention and excitement. And so this sort of plays into this idea of international prestige and soft power because, again, there aren't very many countries that can send uh, people into, into space right now that have done that. So it's really another means to compete other than military, right? You know, this idea that we can, we have the, <laughs> to use a bad phrase, we have the technology, uh, we have the industrial capability to do this says that we're sort of a modern, advanced, developed nation, right? And that sort of sets us aside from other nations that don't have that capability. It does make me wonder, though, that since the United States uh, decommissioned the shuttle program, which mm -hmm. that probably isn't the right term, but the United States has been hitching ride to get uh, U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station. Is uh, I know there's a program underway, the Orion program, if I remember right, uh, mm -hmm. to change that, but has that been a morale issue, do you think? Has, has that something that people at NASA think about a lot? Well, it is something that people think about a lot. I wouldn't say it's a morale problem within NASA. A lot of people, again, not to be cynical or overly critical, but, you know, people would come up to me or other people who work at NASA and say, so, wait a minute, do you still have a job? Does NASA still exist after the shuttle program finished up a few years back in 2011? And of course, you know, we, the agency still exists and does great things. And not only that, but we continue to fly humans in space, just not on a vehicle that launches from the United States. So yes, we have to hitch rides on Russian Soyuz vehicles. And there's been actually, there's sort of a whole history to that discussion that policy discussion of whether or not that was the right move. And I know a little bit about that because I've studied the time period from 1999 leading up to 2004, where some of this stuff was discussed. And in particular, after the Columbia space shuttle accident in 2003, people were really wondering, well, what's going to happen next with, with the shuttle program, with NASA, with human spaceflight in the United States in general, and to sort of wrap up a long, complicated story of uh, policy making, the sausage making of policy, uh, what happened immediately after the Columbia accident was President George W. Bush went on record in some public remarks at a memorial service and said, we're going to continue to fly this space shuttle. We're going to go back to flying people safely in space. And so once he said that, then sort of all the policy makers 
how to sort of step in a line and say, okay, we will do this because people were wondering um, sort of wither NASA, if you will. Like if you view human spaceflight as a raison d'etre for NASA, and if you view under human spaceflight, well, the shuttle was sort of the main aspect that people were thinking about in terms of human spaceflight. Well, then what are we doing? And there was actually serious discussion about whether or not NASA should continue to exist. But what happened, as I said, afterwards was President George W. Bush sort of put his foot down and said, we're going to do this. We're going to continue to fly the shuttles safely. And so, uh, so they developed a policy plan that entailed resuming uh, safe shuttle flights afterwards as soon as possible and then finishing building the International Space Station, which, of course, is the other big piece um, that we were doing even at that time in terms of human spaceflight. And so we'd finish the International Space Station, and then we'd do other things like go on to the moon and Mars. And so at that time, in, in 2003, after the Columbia accident, there were a bunch of policymakers who were sort of debating this. And one of the things about how we're going to do all this stuff, right, and one of the things that they were wondering about was, well, if we retire the shuttle after a few more years, even after we get back to flying it safely, we can't fly it safely indefinitely because the technology was just there's like a um, what's the term? There's like a uh, expected lifetime of the technology. You know, like you, you buy a car, you buy a washing machine. It's only going to run for a certain number of years. Right. And so. The idea was that after a few more years, the technology wouldn't be safe to fly anymore anyway. And so how would we get into space to get to the International Space Station? Well, we'd have to rely on the Russians. And so there was there was active or explicit debate about this, whether that was the right move. And the people who were involved decided that it was a trade-off that was worth making. Rather, because the other... The other option would have been to somehow refurbish the shuttle technology, which would have been very expensive and complicated. And it's not clear that that would have worked. So, you know, it's not like it was an easy decision, but there's definitely a downside to that, that, yes, we are reliant on the Russians right now to get astronauts into space. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's the Russian space program like right now? Specifically, I'm thinking like their shuttle program. 
Well, the, uh, their soy is a launch vehicle, or is that what you're referring to? Yes. Okay, because they they had a shuttle program a number of years ago that is separate, and we can talk about that if you like. Uh, yeah, um, definitely would love to talk about that later. Sure, sure. Uh, but right now, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Soviet space program, but I mean, it, their Soyuz vehicles have a excellent track record of safety and reliability. They do work well, and they are very reliable. So that's what we use. Um, sort of more broadly, how how is the Soviet space? Excuse me, how is the Russian space program doing right now? That's probably best addressed by other specialists who know more about that and know more about domestic Russian politics as well to see how it's how that program is situated in terms of resources vis-a-vis other other programs within Russia. Yeah, I, I would just mention that, of course, we are the United States is still going to be hitching rides even as tensions rise between the two countries, mm-hmm. uh, just like the movie 2010. Yep. Well. It's uh, it is an issue, and um, uh, it, it's a peculiar situation. There's no doubt about it. But um, you know, we continue to work well with the Russian, with our Russian partners on the projects that we have, including uh, most prominently the International Space Station. There's there's really you know a strong incentive for both sides to cooperate to work on that program together because. It, you know, we have to make it work. We have to make it safe for the astronauts and cosmonauts who fly there. So, it, yes, it, it may lead to strange situations where we would be inclined at a sort of grander strategic level. There might be some people who would say, well, we shouldn't cooperate with the Russians because of the nefarious things they're doing in other areas. But And, the, and I'm not uh, taking a position one way or another on that, I'm just saying that we continue to work productively and cooperatively with the Russians on the International Space Station because we we both know we need to do that. What do you make of Trump's Space Force? That idea of a Space Force? Yes. Well, first of all, uh, let me say that uh, – I'm really more of a historian than a present tense policy person. So um, in that vein, I will say that um, it's not – this idea has been around for a while. Um, The idea being that it might be something similar to uh, core, like the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. Maybe there would be a space corps that would be part of the Air Force. That there are different models, you know, maybe it'd be more like, I don't know, the Coast Guard or something like that, a Space Guard, something like that. There are different models that way. But um, I do think that, you know, a number of people um, in the national security space community in particular do believe it's a good idea, uh, whether or not there's enough momentum to make a major organizational shift like that is anybody's guess right now it's hard to say um but th- there is some logic behind it it's just sort of from a historian's perspective looking back in time it's hard to say what the conditions would need to be in the future for that to actually take place because you know of course 
making any major change like that, there would be presumably entrenched interests that would need to be assuaged or um, placated or, you know, that would need to sort of work around that. Um, even if everybody were for it, there were, you know, even if virtually everybody would, would be for it, it would still be a major organizational shift. So it's, it's hard to say um, how that would play out. Let's backtrack a little bit. Can you tell us about the, I don't know if failed is the right word, the, the previous Russian shuttle program that you teased a little bit earlier? They had a program called the Buran, B-U-R-A-N, and um, it's uh, apparently uh, Russian for blizzard. Um, the Buran space shuttle, um, the orbiter looks very similar to the U.S. space shuttle orbiter, but it was really different in a, in a number of ways. One way that it was different was that it was, uh, the orbiter was attached to these large Energia launch vehicles. And it looks on, from a sort of diagram point of view, an overall bird's eye diagram point of view, it looks very similar to the U.S. shuttle because the U.S. shuttle had the, the solid rocket boosters that would sit on the side of the orbiter. But, uh, from a technical point of view, there was a major difference, and that was that the space shuttle main engine on the U.S. side was built physically into the orbiter, and it drew fuel from the external tank. But the way they configured the system in the Soviet model under, under the Buran Energia system was that the, the main engine was actually in the launch vehicle. So, um, so that was rather different, and it was sort of – they had already – built the Energia launch vehicles beforehand, so it was a, a little easier for them to adapt rather than to build a whole new rocket engine for this purpose. So there's that difference. The other major difference, another major difference, was that Boron was actually designed to be unmanned or uncrewed. that would actually be able to fly and did fly without cosmonauts aboard. So they, they actually only flew it once. There was a test flight in the late 80s. I think it was 86 or 88. I'd have to double-check the date. But it flew just once, and there was no crew on board, and they were able to manually control it from the ground. So um, it was really designed for sort of uh, different purposes, and it was designed after the U.S. shuttle flew. And a lot of people said, well, they just sort of, the Soviets ripped off the technology. Um, and there are people who question about uh, technology transfer, and there's some, there's a thread to that. But um, which, which also, think, by the way, is code for spies. Right, right. <laughs> technology <laughs> transfer is one of my favorite little pieces of code. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, tech transfer means different things in different contexts, but in that context. There's the idea that they ripped off the technology, that they stole the technology from us. But um, but that's not the whole story. It's not even the main story, I would say, that that there's only like a certain number of configurations that would work technically um, for what both the U.S. and the Soviets wanted at that time. So they're like the delta wing shape, those small you know, triangular wings on the side of the orbiter. That gives you what's called cross-range capability, which is a little hard to describe verbally, but 
but it, it allows you to do polar orbits and land at the same place where you took off, basically, to make a long story short. So if you wanted to be able to do that, you need the delta wings. And so it, it sort of has to be configured a certain way. That said, they did, to some extent, there is an argument to be made that they did sort of copy the technology. But, but the program didn't really go anywhere. As I said, it only flew once. It was just a robotic flight. But it is kind of fascinating. I got to say, one of the reasons why uh, when you when we talked before the show and you mentioned the Baron, one of the things that's just fascinating, if anybody has time to go look at the Wikipedia page for this thing, first of all, it does look enormously like a U.S. space shuttle. Second of all, it met such a really, you know, wah, wah kind of end. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, if I remember it, it was bigger than the U.S. space shuttle, but ended up in a hangar. They didn't quite know what to do with it. And eventually the ceiling of the hangar fell on it. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's right. how it and ended. It, it was in terrible disrepair. And then, yeah, the hangar, the ceiling of the hangar collapsed. And they also had another vehicle, another Baron test vehicle that was set up in, as like a tourist attraction in some like Gorky Park in Moscow or something. And it just seems kind of, uh, um, I mean, like, yes, we have the uh, old shuttle orbiters on display around the country at the Air and Space Museum in D.C. or outside of D.C. And we have one on display outside of Kennedy Space Center. But it's like the sort of, <laughs> it is a little crazy, like, there was such a competition for who's going to get the U.S. shuttle orbiters after the program ended. And, you know, people are sort of, it's like the bidding for uh, Amazon 2 headquarters, right? You know, that everybody wanted to have it, right? And, uh, you know, presumably they take really good care of it at these places. But the Soviet, the Soviet Union, at that point, the Soviet Union was, uh, you know, on its last legs before it dissolved and, this wasn't really something that uh, was a, of major interest for the Soviet leadership. It didn't really matter anymore. So it just sort of fell apart and fell into disrepair, sort of figuratively and literally. The collapse actually killed some workers, too. Yeah, I think I heard that. Oh, yeah. thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for that cheerful note. <laughs> I'm just, hey, man, this is war college. You know how we do. Um, if I could uh, just shift to one more uh, aspect of soft power, because we have we've talked about the U.S. We've talked about Russia. Uh, we haven't really talked about China, which just had a, uh, a big milestone with their first space station crashing to Earth. Of course, Mir and Skylab preceded uh, the, I think it's Taigong, uh, by many years. So, I mean, do you think China's following in the same footsteps that the U.S. and Russia already have? I think they're taking a different path. And I hesitate to say too much about this because I'm not a Chinese expert. Basically, China is sort of taking a different path. They've Yes, they've flown Taikonauts, they had the space station, but they, they're sort of, I don't know how to peg it in terms of 
how many years behind us or behind the Russians they are, but they, because it's not a linear path necessarily, they have a different program, and I'm not sure exactly what their goals are. They they do have a lot of it is sort of intermingled, like the old Soviet program, with sort of military and civilian goals. A lot of, I would say, the control of the Chinese space program is by the military. But for much more than that, you'd really have to ask somebody who's much more of an expert on that program. I will say, though, if I may, that I'm a uh, big believer in what uh, a lot of folks call applied history, making history relevant for current policymakers. That is really important and sort of an important role for our office and other federal history offices. So it's not just sort of looking at what happened in the past as an academic exercise. It should be really relevant and useful for people in the present tense as we think about the future. What lessons do you think need to be applied from history going forward? What's the big takeaway from NASA's past? Oh, that's tough. Um, well, let's see. Let, let me come back to that in a moment, if I may, and interject another little story about the that'll hopefully explicate the value of applied history. May I do that? Sure, of course. Okay, so I know a guy who used to be a historian at the National Security Agency, the NSA, not NASA, but NSA. And uh, he's a big advocate, as I say, for applied history. He tells an interesting story about how when he took a group of NSA leaders, top leaders on a so-called staff ride, and they went to the Antietam battlefield. And you might say, well, what does the Civil War have to do with anything current that's going on at NSA? And uh, he gauged it appropriately. He took an intelligence slant, uh, an intelligence history slant to this field trip, this staff ride. And he talked about this story, which I don't know if if you've ever heard it or not, I, this was the first time I had heard of it because I don't, I, I'm the first one to admit, I don't know diddly about the Civil War. But apparently what happened was at the Antietam battlefield, the Union forces knew there was going to be a big battle there, right? And so McClellan, the Union general, was very cautious by nature. And he was very concerned about the Confederate forces and how they might amass at Antietam. And so what he did was he basically contracted out military intelligence to Alan Pinkerton, Pinkerton's detective agency, which was formed later after the war. And uh, he asked Pinkerton to send some scouts to assess what the battlefield was going to look like. Right. And so Pinkerton was very wise and knew that McClellan was very cautious this way. Some might say overly cautious. And uh, he reported back to McClellan that it looked grim, that the Confederates had amassed a lot of forces there and that it looked like it was going to be very serious, right? And so McClellan held back forces that he could have applied earlier on in the battle that could well have changed the course of that day's battle, the bloodiest battle in American history, right? And so 
interestingly, the some of the top leaders from the NSA who were there that day, this was a few years back in the, let's see, uh, about a decade ago, uh, maybe a little more than that. They sort of got the message without my colleague, the historian, having to say it explicitly. And the message that they took home was that if you're a policymaker, an intelligence customer, right, you need to be careful not to have the people who are delivering the intelligence to you overly cater to your disposition. You need to get the, if you will, raw intelligence or the the analysis, not have it be overly slanted by by the customer's particular whims or personality or what have you. And the way they drew that conclusion to more present day circumstances was that with the idea of apparently there were weapons of mass destruction in Saddam Hussein's Iraq when there really weren't, of course. And so anyway, this is I like this story because it sort of wraps up this idea of applied history and making something that happened a long time ago really relevant for current day policymakers. So hopefully that is somewhat helpful and at least it's a uh, military analogy for your listeners as well. Um, going back to um, what lesson I would, I would, sort of the main theme or lesson I would draw from NASA history, that's, uh, that's a little bit of a tough one. There are a lot of different lessons to be learned sort of about the uses of history. A lot of what history is, is separating the wheat from the chaff in terms of what's relevant and what's not, what's a relevant analogy and what's not. So maybe maybe you might say that uh, the story about McClellan and Pinkerton really doesn't matter at all in terms of current day circumstances, in terms of intelligence policymaking. Maybe you think it really doesn't matter. But I think some of these Key people did feel like there was a relevant analogy. But anyway, the idea is that historians try and help help us think about what's different and what's really similar with current day events and past events. So comparing and contrasting. Another uh, big lesson from NASA history, I would say, is, revolves around technology, because I would argue that NASA has a an engineering culture. If you look at the number of, like the number of people in different walks of life who work at NASA, the largest group is engineers, right? Um, We do a lot of great science and it's sort of oriented towards science, but it's, and it's dominated by engineers. And what do engineers do? Well, they build technology, right? So I'm going to, if I may share a little quip about technology and it comes from a guy named Melvin Kranzberg, who was one of the deans, the sort of one of the founders of the field of history of technology in the 50s, early 60s, around the time NASA was getting started. And he said, technology is neither good nor bad nor neutral. In other words, it always has different effects and it's designed in different ways by different people for different purposes. So it's worth thinking about those purposes, those specific circumstances to sort of get the most out of history. Hopefully that's somewhat useful. (laughs) Okay. Well, Steve, that will give us something to think about, I think, until next week's episode. Okay. Okay. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to this week's show. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a review wherever you found it. Stitcher, iTunes, we don't really care. Matter of fact, if you leave us a review, we may read it on the air like this one. My favorite weekly podcast, five stars. War College is great. Well, thank you so much, Smeklar. We really do appreciate it. And by the way, War College is finally getting its own website. It's going to be warcollege.co. Not .com. Someone else got the .com first, but .co. We look forward to seeing you there, and we're planning on putting up transcripts of the show. We'll talk to you again next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.